Hello, and welcome to the Crossroads Podcast. My name is Nick Shaw, and I'm the Communications Director at the Church. And in this message, we were joined by our friend Davey Blackburn from Nothing is Wasted Ministries. It's always a special Sunday when Davey comes to speak, and this Sunday was no different. So grab something to take notes with and get ready to hear an awesome message from Davey titled, Take Back Your Life. I'm excited to be here today. I've got a couple of things uh, that, first of all, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Davey, and um, I, I live here in Indianapolis, and uh, my family and I run a ministry called Nothing is Wasted Ministries. We help people through their trauma, tragedies, and major life transitions, and we help them find purpose in their pain, and it stems out of a really tragic thing that we went through uh, almost six years ago now where I lost my, my first wife and our unborn baby um, here in Indianapolis uh, to a home, a home invasion murder, and so... Man, through that, God's healed me in some tremendous ways, and he has also opened up a lot of doors for us to part- partner with other organizations, to partner with churches, and to help people walk in healing through whatever they're going through. And so um, I, I want to talk a little bit about that, but before we dive into some stuff today, um, we have a couple of things. One, our ministry is ju- just now, like it's actually not released yet, but we're releasing a devotional. It's a 42-day devotional, and people have been pre-ordering this for the past month. Uh, it's, a, it's basically a 42-day guide to walk through Scripture on some characters in the Bible about how they went from pain to purpose. It's a great resource for you in your quiet time. It's a great resource to give to somebody who uh, maybe is going through a difficult time in your life, and they're, trying to ask, they're asking the questions, where is God in all of this? And listen, this is, um, this is not available until July 22nd, but we've made it available to you today. Normally, it costs $25 to buy this, and we're going to give it to you for 20 bucks. It's right out there. As you leave, you can, um, you can pick this up and, and purchase as many copies as you want to. But I'm telling you, I went and picked them up in a trailer yesterday in Chicago because I knew I was coming here, and I was like, I want my Crossroads families to have first dibs on this. Come on, right? And so even the people that, the early birds that pre-ordered online, they're not getting the access that you are. They don't get it until July 22nd, so shh. Okay, I, I blew a tire, tire in my trailer on the way home from uh, Chicago, and that's, that's how much the enemy does not want this to be in your hands because he knows there's going to be some freedom and breakthrough and healing that happens when you pick this up and read it. And so I would love to encourage you to do that. I'll meet you out at the table, and we can chat afterwards. Um, and, and, and I also want to invite you to something. Uh, we're, we're talking with Pastor Craig and with you guys uh, to partner with you guys as a church to offer our pain to purpose course. And so there'll be some more information that are, that's kind of coming down the pike about that. Um, but if just out of curiosity, if anybody feels uh, led to, especially after what we talk about today, or if you feel like the Holy Spirit's nudging you, we're looking for people here in Crossroads Congregation that would be willing to help facilitate this course. And so if you have any interest in helping other people move from pain to purpose, maybe you have a story of your own and you want to kind of out of that story, you want to partner with God in the redemption process that he has for you and you'd love to help facilitate that here at Crossroads, I'd love to meet you out there. Tomorrow night, we are actually putting on a pain to purpose workshop at Mercy Road Church in Carmel. So if anybody wants to make the drive, it is free. There's free childcare. We're going to dive into some of the stuff we're talking about today on an even deeper level. Um, and so you, you can, you know, be a part of that, and I just would love to extend that invitation. So you guys ready to dive into God's word? You guys want to, okay, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30, 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we're going to talk about a guy named David, because I figured, you know, with a name like David, you can't go wrong, right? So let's just, uh, 
joke. You got some of you guys, I thought your name was Davey. No, it, okay, it is, but it's, all right, it's, real name is David. So anyways, that's my favorite character in scripture, and I think it's because we, we share a namesake, but I also resonate a lot with what David went through in scripture, and I think we see him as this prolific king. We see him as this guy, and he's the greatest king that ever lived, but he went through quite uh, a journey and quite a process, and, and some of it was very overwhelming and very painful, and I just wonder how many of you stepped in here and you feel overwhelmed. You feel like what is kind of coming around you, surrounding you, put on you, the burdens that you're experiencing, just feels like it's too much to, to handle. And I want to dis dispel a myth that has been circulating throughout church world for a long time, and I want to go ahead and, and I want to just eliminate this myth in your mindset right now, and that is this myth. Maybe you've heard this before. God will never put on you more than what you can handle. You ever heard that? Yeah. And, and the problem is, is that's nowhere in Scripture. You understand that, right? <laughs> right? It's kind of like, you know, people will say, like, cleanliness is next to godliness. That's <laughs> in, like, First Hesitations, chapter 2. No, Benjamin Franklin said that, okay? <laughs> Scripture doesn't say that at all, right? So, so that, it didn't say anything about God will put on, never put on you more than what you can handle. What they do is they take this verse that says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And when you are tempted, God will always give you a way out of that temptation. So somehow they've taken that verse and twisted it into making us feel better about our circumstances and saying, God will never put on you more than what you can handle. And I'm here to tell you that sometimes God does put on you more than what you can handle. Sometimes God allows things into your life that are overwhelming. And he does this, listen to me, friends, he does this for our good because he loves us. No, hold on, Dave, how in the world can you say God will put on me more than what I can handle because he loves us? Well, because I'm a dad. And I know this to be true because of my kids. In fact, this past winter, we have, by the way, an eight-year-old, eight an about-to-be seven-year-old, and a 19-month-old. They're all firstborns. You know this? Because we blended a family. So our eight-year-old, firstborn. Seven-year-old, firstborn. 19-month-old, our firstborn. Okay? So pray for me. Um, and so this 19-month-old, he is a wild card, and we wanted to take him out in the snow, and so I put something on him to go out to the snow. Look at this. Would you, I mean, that looks like a, a, a face that's in distress, Right? I mean, and, and it was more than what he could handle. In fact, I remember when we, put it, when we first put it on him, he was just starting to walk. And so he, he kind of like tries to walk over with this thing, you know, and he bends over and he tries to pick something up. And next thing I know, I kind of walk away and I hear him, and I'm like, what's going on, Cohen? And I walk over, oh, he wants to pick this thing up. So I come over, I pick the thing up, I put it in his hands while he's still like this. And I start to walk away and I, and I hear, and I'm like, what's the deal, dude? I just gave it to you. And I realize it dawns on me, he can't stand up. <laughs> like this whole thing, it's kind of like a Christmas story. Right? Like, you know, like, and, and it was more than what he could handle. But why did I put that on him? Because I love him. I care about him. I'm trying to protect him. I actually need him to kind of grow into this a little bit and learn how to walk with this on. And he did eventually. Look, this is where he began to, if you see this video, the next video right here. See if we can get that on there because it's really it's really cute and funny. Here we go. Look at this. Look at him. Here he goes. I could watch this over and over. It's like, where's his legs at? You know, that's <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. He started getting the hang of it, and the reason, again, the oh reason that I word. put on him 
more than what he can handle is because I love him. And the same is true, listen, friends, with our Heavenly Father. The only reason that God would allow things to pass through his sovereign hands into our life, the only reason he might put on something in our lives more than what we can handle is because he cares about us and he's inviting us into a deeper space of intimacy with him. And that's what we find with this guy named David. David went through some very overwhelming circumstances. In fact, if you read the book of Psalms, I don't know if any of you are confused by the Bible ever, but I'm confused by it, especially the book of Psalms, because like one chapter will be like, God, you're, you're, you're so near to me. Your, your breath is on my neck. And then the very next chapter is like, where are you? You abandoned me. You know, it's like, wait, so, it sounds like this was written by somebody who's a little schizophrenic, needs a little medication, you know? And, and, it, and it doesn't make sense until you start to wrestle with the same kinds of feelings, right? Because you're going through something difficult and you understand what it feels like to waffle back and forth with these overwhelming emotions. Well, David wrote most of the Psalms. In fact, if we look at Psalm chapter 120, this is what he says. He says, in my distress, I call upon the Lord, and he answered me. But then six chapters later, this is what he says. He says in Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, so there's six chapters between distress and restoration, between this valley season that Pastor Craig was talking about and kind of a mountaintop experience. And my question is, is what was going on in the middle of that season? Because I think we can find ourselves in the middle of those seasons a lot. We can find ourselves in the middle of these seasons where we go, I'm overwhelmed, I'm feeling adversity coming against me, I'm feeling difficulty, God, where are you in this season? And if we don't properly understand scripture and who God is, we can very easily buy into some lies that the enemy has for us in this season. And this is what paralyzes us paralyzes us from stepping into our full potential and purpose more than anything else. When we find ourselves in a season of distress and duress and we begin to buy into the, the lie that God is not there anymore. Friends, Psalm 20, how many of you know Psalm 23 verse four says that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not have to fear because he is with us. But it's very difficult to know that when you're in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, right? And so as I was reading through this, I was going, okay, what? What's like happening here? And I wonder where this was in David's life that he wrote this. And I found this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 30 that's this very obscure passage. And we see within this a template of what happened to David and then how he responded that I think can give us a template for how we can respond in difficult seasons as well. All right, you ready to, you ready to dive into this? Okay, here's, here's what's happening right here in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Let me give you a little context. The context is this, David is not king yet. Now, he's been anointed king, but he's not been appointed king. Oh, man, I could preach this message for years. Come on, somebody. How many of you know there's usually a season between the time that God gives you an anointing and before he actually allows you to step into the appointing? For David, it was 15 years that God was developing him in a dark room before he was ready, before his character could match his charisma to step into the appointing that God had for him. Come on, somebody. You need to know that God has maybe given you a dream or a vision or a purpose in your life, and you may not see that purpose into happening in fruition right now, but I can promise you as he develops you, he's going to build you into the person that he wants you to be before you can step into that. Because we all know people who is, whose talent has taken them much further than their character can sustain them, right? We all see these like uprising viral stars that they just hit the, the, the limit, they hit the sky, right? And then all of a sudden they hit their limits and they can't sustain that. We all see pastors who have fallen 
because their character can't quite sustain it. And so what God does sometimes in the midst of the anointing and the appointing is that he puts on us more than what we can handle to build our character. Okay, different message for a different time. I'll come back and preach that message later because that's a good one. But what's happening is he's not king yet, and he, uh, he actually was given an, an assignment in Saul's court. Saul was the king at the time, and the assignment was to go and play the harp for Saul because Saul had a mental disorder. He was full of anxiety. And it, the only thing that could, that could quell this was when David would play the harp. Well, Saul got so jealous of David because David was just a mighty warrior. He also, I think, knew that David was gonna be the next king. And so while David's playing the harp, Saul takes a spear and throws it at David trying to kill David, which sends David on the run for years and years and years. At one point, while David's on the run, he is... He is um, he, 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 he resorts to, he thinks the only thing that he can do is actually go behind enemy lines and go be a part of the Philistine encampment. Now, this is crazy, because if you know anything about David, you got the quintessential story, David and Goliath, right? David defeats Goliath. Well, what was Goliath? What nation was he a part of? The Philistines. So here's this guy who, after he's defeated Goliath, goes to a Philistine commander, Achish, and, and, and convinces him that he's deserted the Israelites and says, I need a home. I need a place. Well, David's doing this really tricky thing. He's got this like covert operation strategy because he hides behind enemy lines and uses it as a method and a means to be able to attack all these other enemies of the Israelites. So he attacks the Amalekites. He attacks the Gershites. He attacks all of the other enemies of God's people. But at some point, one of these enemies says, I've had it. And the attack comes back on him. And watch what happens right here in 1 Samuel 30. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. See what's happened here? One of these enemies gets ticked off and says, okay, I've had enough. And they come and they raid the Ziklag camp and they pillage it and they plunder it and they take off, they take David, David's wives and all of his men's wives and children as prisoners of war. I would say this is probably a situation that's more than what David can handle, wouldn't you? They come back and discover this, and this could be potentially up to this point the most tragic situations that David had ever gone through. And here's what's crazy about it. This was an enemy attack. You see, in our ministry, we, we talk about four perpetrators of pain, and I don't want to be oversimplified, but it is important to recognize why pain might be coming into your life. The first perpetrator of pain is potentially... Um, the, uh, other people's sinful choices. You know, there's this, this thing called free will that God has given us because he loves us. Because coercing us to return and reciprocate love is not real love. And God is the embodiment of true love. So he gives us the choice to love him back. And some people choose not to love him back. They choose not to walk in his ways. And so they end up uh, doing sinful things outside of God's ways. And sometimes those sinful things um, actually encroach upon us right? And, and, and people hurt us. And so that's one perpetrator of pain. The other perpetrator of pain might be your own sinful choices. Come on. I mean, some of us, we are still 
Even though if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for the things that you've done in your past. There, there's no accusation for that. You are forgiven. You are set free. But some of us are still living with the ripple effects and consequences of some of the sinful choices that we've made in our past. There's nobody that has lied to me, tricked me, deceived me, or, or duped me more than me. And I think it's important to recognize that. But the third perpetrator of pain is spiritual attack. Did you know that we have a very real enemy? Scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter six that we don't fight a battle of flesh and blood, although this battle that is taking place sometimes it manifests itself in flesh and blood, but, but this battle is in, is in the spiritual, it's in the principalities, it's in an unseen realm that we can see, but, or we can't see, but we can perceive, we can sense it, right? And there's a very real enemy, and he is, he is so convinced that he can steal, kill, and destroy. In fact, that's what Jesus said in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's all he wants to do. He wants to steal your joy, he wants to kill your purpose, and he wants to destroy the God-given destiny that he's placed on your life. And there's a spiritual attack that is coming against us. And what is taking place here is an enemy has come against David. And I need you to hear me say that an enemy is out to get you. He wants to paralyze you. He wants to neutralize you. He does not want you to be effective for the kingdom of God. Once you step into the ranks of being a part, enlisted in the army of God, once you receive what Jesus did for you on the cross, you believe that he raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit has come into your life, has empowered you. You now have a target on your back. And I hope you understand this friends, because he doesn't want you at, in any way to walk effectively in the kingdom whatsoever. He wants to paralyze you. He wants to rob from you the destiny that God has for you. Every one of us has a unique and distinct purpose marked out for our lives. We've been given spiritual gifts to walk out this kingdom calling in our lives now, and it gives us life, and it gives us fulfillment, and the enemy knows he can't steal your salvation, but oh man, he can steal your joy. And he can steal your purpose, and he can steal your calling, and he can neutralize you, and that is what he is meant to do. And so from the moment that you receive Christ, there is a target on your back. Now, this could lead to a lot of questions. Uh, let me table this for a second, because I've got to give you the fourth perpetrator of pain, because I know you'll be like, what's the fourth one? Some of you type A personalities, right? The fourth perpetrator of pain is just that we live in a fallen and broken world, that this world is fractured since sin entered into it. It fractured the entire universe, and now there's this ever-increasing unraveling of the world because of sin, and we are caught up in that. So disease and famine and all of that is the reason this is the case. But I want to lean in on the spiritual attack, because the very idea that there is a target on our backs could cause a lot of questions right here, because there was a target on David's back, and this enemy came to raid and steal and kill and destroy, and he did. So, so the first question that I would ask, knowing there's a target on my back, is, well, well why should I, like, advance on the enemy, <laughs> right? Because we all, we all experience this, don't we? We experience this sense of opposition. We experience this sense of adversity. We experience this sense that, like, man, I make a decision either, one, to follow Christ and, and make him the savior, savior of my life, or two, to walk in repentance and obedience when he points out something that's going on inside of me. And the, it's like the moment I take that step, it's like the enemy comes and attacks. Don't you feel like that? And you kind of think like, oh, once I take this step, there's going to be this breakthrough and everything's going to be well. It's going to be good, right? And, and, and it's like, well, wait a minute, what happened? I'm feeling this onslaught. Like I'm driving up to get these devotionals in Chicago and I load them all up in the truck and I come, I'm an hour on the road back from Chicago and my tire blows. And I'm like, come on, 
This should be easy, God. You should be parting the waters for me, right? Like, this should be, let's go. No, 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 because there is a, a real enemy at work here, and he does not want you to be effective for the kingdom. And so it would be easy to say, okay, well, that, that's a little bit scary. I don't know if I want to... I don't know if I want to lean into that and advance on the enemy and enlist in the kingdom of light. I don't know if I want to do that. Well, if you take on that mentality, friends, you already play into the enemy's ploys. Because if you say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to serve at, at church, or I don't, want to, I don't want to help other people, I don't want to like step into this ministry that I feel like God's calling me to do, I don't want to do that because, man, it might get a little bit difficult, there might be some adversity, the enemy's going to come and attack me, I just, uh, there's a spiritual warfare going on, so I'm just going to like play it cool, I'm just going to kind of like ride this thing out. You have already played into the enemy's ploys and he has won. And now he looks at you and goes, eh, I don't need to worry about them, they're already neutralized. They're already going to live uh, an empty and ill-effective life. Don't worry about them. So, friends, I have, to, I have to press in and go, if you're not feeling opposition in any way, you, you might need to do a double check and go, am I, like, advancing against the kingdom of darkness? Is my life enlisted in God's army? Am I doing something on purpose for God? But man, this really encourages those of us who are experiencing opposition, doesn't it? Because you might have convinced yourself that the reason you're experiencing opposition is because you've done something wrong or because God's trying to punish you. And the reality might be that you are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing and that's why you're experiencing opposition because the enemy is after you to try to neutralize you. That's so encouraging to me. The other thing that's encouraging about this, though, is that there are certain laws that govern the spiritual world. Just like there are laws that govern the natural world, like uh, Newton's third law. You know what Newton's third law says? It says for every action, there is an opposite and what? Equal reaction, okay? That's a law that governs the physical universe. And there is a similar law that governs the spiritual universe, but it's not the same law. Because while there is for every action an opposite reaction, come on somebody, how many of you know it is not an equal reaction? Because when we advance on the enemy, friends, the scriptures tell us greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The scriptures tell us no weapon formed against me can prosper. The scriptures tell us that he fights his, our battles on our behalf and we don't have to be concerned about what can harm the body. We only need to be, need to be concerned what can harm the soul. There is an opposite reaction but it's not equal. So then it leads me to believe, okay, why then, I think rationally, I don't know if you guys do or not, but I kind of think rationally and linearly, and this is kind of how God was helping me through some of my tragedy. Well, God, why didn't, in this passage, you could have prevented this from happening. Right? Couldn't he have? He could have placed this hedge of protection around David's camp. This like, I mean, we see this in scripture many times where angels with fiery swords, you know, guarding certain things and they're not letting people pass. And it's like, why didn't you do that? It's kind of interesting to me how many times in my own life I, I fail to recognize the times that God has placed a hedge of protection around me or my family. Every moment, every day, every week, all the different times that he's prevented or thwarted the enemy's ploy in my life, and he's saved me and protected me. And I fail to acknowledge that and give him glory and credit for that. But the moment that something happens where it seems like he was absent, I shake my fist at him and blame God for that. He 
You see, what I've learned, friends, is that God doesn't always intervene to prevent things from happening in our lives. But he always intervenes to produce something out of that circumstance. Scripture tells us that this light and momentary affliction, look it up, 2 Corinthians 4, light and momentary affliction. How many of you know it doesn't feel light and momentary sometimes, right? But what it says is this light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs the former. So listen to, listen to this. As heavy as that, that light and momentary affliction feels right now, come on, friends, Scripture promises it is producing something for us that far exceeds, is way heavier, is way more comforting, brings way more restoration than what that could ever be. And that sometimes we might even forget the pain that we went through because of the restoration that God brings us to. Light and momentary. It's producing something for us. He's doing something in this. So that means, friends, that everything that passes through the hands of a sovereign God into our lives is a gift. It's a gift. David, how in the world can you say that this hardship and this pain is a gift? Well, Scripture says that every good and perfect thing, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. So what that tells me is that anything that passes through his hands and comes into my life is a gift, and anything that stops in his hands that he withholds from my life, he doesn't want me to have. Because if I had it, what I think would be a blessing would actually be a curse. And the things that I look at as curses because it came through his hands, because he allowed it, it actually can be a blessing. This is the upside-down kingdom that we live in, friends. This is a different perspective that you have to operate in. How could it be a gift? Well, because he does it for our gain. I don't know if you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot. You guys ever heard of Elizabeth Elliot? I want you to Google her when you get home. Um, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot's unbelievable story, very prolific. But Elizabeth Elliot lost her first husband, Jim, on the mission field to murder. It's just like powerful story. The second, her second husband, she lost to cancer. And in between her second husband and her third husband, she wrote this phrase that I read in a book called The Path of Loneliness that marked me, changed my life. She talked about the gain of loss. The gain of loss. What a paradox, huh? She said, what you gain in, relation, in relationship to the giver far outweighs the loss of the gift. Can I say that again? Because that's real profound. So I'm going to need to write this down this time. What you gain in relationship to the giver far outweighs the loss of the gift. Now, can I say, when I, when I, when I went through losing my wife, I don't, when I read that, I, I couldn't say that that was true. I couldn't. It's like, what in the world? How could you say that? But I was watching this woman from afar, right, through her writing, who had lived this out. And I was like, if she can, if God can do that through her, maybe he can do that in me. And I began to borrow her faith. 
And can I tell you, friends, six years later, as I'm watching what God is doing and what he's done in my life, I can, I can tell you that I'm beginning to see the glimpses of, of how, how he met me and how he's revealed to me the mysteries of himself and how I feel closer to him than I've ever felt ever, ever, ever in my life prior to the tragedy taking place and how I see things about his character and nature. And he's given me insights into these things that, 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 that nobody else is, is able to see because of the pain that I've walked through. And if you've walked through pain, you understand what I'm talking about. If God's carried you through pain, you, know, you understand what I'm talking about. He makes himself real to you in those moments. He, he, you get to know him when you're in the valley, right? You can know about him on the mountaintop, but you get to know him when you're in the valley. And he does something so profound that says, wow, maybe this thing is, could possibly be worth going through for what I'm receiving in my relationship with Christ. You see, there is, friends, going to be a resistance that comes against us. There's going to be a resistance. But we get to choose how we're going to respond to that resistance. You can't choose what happens to you in your life. But you can choose how you respond. And David comes on this camp. And he, it's unbelievable, his response. He does a couple things, which I, I believe gives us a formula for how we should respond. The, the, the first thing is crazy. It's crazy. Like, like, I can't believe the first thing he does. Because it says, it says, 1 Samuel chapter 34 through 5, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Now, the reason I, I can't believe this is because you're talking about these are warriors. These are men, right? These are like hard-nosed, calloused, They've been in battle. Come on, like, like uh, unless you have served in, in the armed forces, none of us have been in battle like what they have been in, okay? So we might think we are real men, you know, because, you know, we've, we've played in, in, in tackle football leagues instead of, like, instead of, like, flag football leagues or, you know, like, puff our chest. These are real men. And the first thing they do is they weep until they had no more strength. You see, what I noticed when I went through my tragedy is that I bought into this lie that I had to be strong. I had to be strong for my son, who's 15 months at the time. I had to be strong for my church that I was pastoring and helping them through this. I had to be strong for everybody else. I had to kind of like put on this pretense like... I'm trusting God, I'm trusting God. And, and let me tell you something, there was definitely some very real, like, just foundational faith stuff that God, like, I knew that I could trust God in this, but, but I didn't want people to see my anguish. I don't know why. And what began happening is I began, this grief, this loss, because I didn't acknowledge it, it began festering and rotting inside of me. Because I felt like I had to be strong as a man. It was, like, it was like rotting inside of me. It's like I had all this pain. I had nowhere to put it. And you got to understand you have to put your pain somewhere. you got to put your pain somewhere. In fact, what we find out a little bit later in this passage is that the, the men, David's men, they put their pain on David. They actually blame David for it. David, it says he's in so much distress after they weep, because the men now want to take him out and stone him and kill him because they think it's David's fault that they did this. Well, we followed you into battle. I don't know if you know anything about David's men, but David's men came to him voluntarily. 
David's men came to him in the cave of Adullam, and they were discontented in debt and in distress. They were a ragtag group that had no hope outside of David, and David developed them into mighty warriors. They owed so much to David. They followed David voluntarily into battle because they said, man, God's doing something through this man, and I want to I follow him. And then the moment something bad happens, they decide to blame David for their tragedy. You know why? Friends, listen, you're going to put your pain somewhere. And if you don't let God transform your pain, you will transfer your pain onto somebody else. And listen to me, friends, listen to me. They adopted what I see across the board is the single greatest thing that paralyzes everybody in their pain. Anybody that's paralyzed, I look at it and I go, okay, yep. And I can tell within the first two sentences of talking with somebody if, they're, if, if they have adopted this mentality. It's a victim mentality. A victim mentality is characterized by blame. Blaming other people, blaming God, blaming this is why I am the way I am. This is where, this is what's going on. This is what, and listen to me, oh, friends, I want to say this with all sensitivity and, and, and all urgency as well. You may be a victim in your circumstance. Absolutely. But there's a difference between being a victim and adopting a victim mentality. There's a difference between being a victim and walking as a victim. And, and the line that distinguishes the two is blame. It doesn't matter what has happened to you. It doesn't matter what other people have done to you. You still, by the power of the resurrected King Jesus, you have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And that spirit empowers you with agency and control to get up out of your victim mentality and walk in victory, friends. And that is the difference maker. So I have to implore you, don't do what David's men did and blame other people or blame God for this. Go, okay, God, what do you want me to do in this? What do you want me to do in this? Okay, so they wept. They wept like until they had no more strength. And I'm, I'm, let me go back to this place where I was like, I was just eaten up. I started getting physically sick because of my grief. Because I didn't, I didn't have, I was trying to, I didn't have anywhere to put it. And, um, and I remember a, a friend of mine uh, who's a pastor and an author, his name is Pastor Levi Lusco. He wrote a book called Through the Eyes of a Lion. It's a phenomenal book. And he writes about this concept called Run Towards the Roar. Have you heard this concept before? It's, it's unbelievable. What he writes about is he says, um, he says lions, they hunt in gender roles. So the, the, the female lion, the lionesses, they're actually the ones that do all the hunting. The male lion is more bark than they are bite. Hello, can I get an amen from a woman in here? Okay. <laughs> but what will happen, you've seen it on National Geographic, right? You'll see this male lion that will go up and there's like watering hole right down there. You know, it's like the zebras and the wildebeest and the male lion will come up and he will get up on his haunches, he'll flare out his mane, he'll out this massive roar and, and try to scare the prey into the other side of the watering hole where the females have laid an ambush. This is their hunting techniques. And so what the prey should do, right, they should actually run toward the male lion because the male lion can't hurt them. <laughs> they should run toward, but that's counterintuitive. They're afraid, so they run away from, and that sets the trap. You know what scripture tells us? 
in 1 Peter chapter 5 that the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he could devour, right? Now, the good news is, is in Christ, he can't devour us. Come on, isn't that good news? The Holy Spirit of God has sealed you. He cannot destroy you. He cannot devour you, but he can scare you. And he can cause fear and anxiety in you. And the fear and anxiety that I was experiencing was, I don't want to deal with these painful emotions. This hurts too bad. And so it was all up inside of me. It was festering. I was getting physically sick until Pastor Levi Lusco reached out to me, texted me, and said, I want to remind you, run toward the roar. So there was this song that was first on my playlist on my phone. And when my Bluetooth would connect to my car, I would get in my car and it would play. And the song was a song that was played at my wedding when I married Amanda. And it was a song that she walked, she walked down the aisle to. And every time I would get in my car, it's like this, it felt like this sick, twisted, like trick of the enemy, right? It's like this thing would come on and it would remind me of her and it would trigger me and I'd be so angry and I'd like stuff it and I'd push it down. And then, and then I started realizing maybe this isn't like a, Maybe this isn't a trigger that the enemy's trying. Maybe it's an invitation that God's asking me to step into to, to bring me into healing. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to run toward the roar. So I pulled over on the side of the road the next time that that happened. And I turned it up. And I listened to it over and over and over on repeat. And all of that stuff that was festering inside of me, it just came out of me. It was like the worst ugly cry you've ever seen in your entire life, right? I was so embarrassed. People were like stopping next to me at the stoplight, and they're like, is he okay? What's going on, you know? But at the end of the day, I just had to let it out. And it was about 30, 45 minutes of just ugly cry, ugly cry, ugly, just letting down all of my guard and just crying and sobbing, and waves of grief came over me. But what, what's crazy is immediately following is waves of grace. And healing happened. And then later, my counselor told me, I was like, what's going on? How did, what happened there? He said, yeah, this is how God heals you. It's through lament. Deep anguish where you acknowledge your pain and you bring your pain to God in all of its honesty. You know he can handle it, friends. Yeah. You know he's not intimidated by it. You know when you start pushing back on God, he's not like, oh, what's going on? You're lacking faith. No, he welcomes it. He invites us into it because this is how he laid things out in Scripture and wired us to work, that when we go through pain and anguish and difficulty and loss and adversity of any kind, if we bring him our pain, that is the portal to healing. So, So Scripture lays out this template. It says, though weeping may tarry through the night, joy comes in the morning. Step one, step two. Ecclesiastes says that there is a time for mourning and then there's a time for dancing. There's a time for weeping and then there's a time for laughter. Come on, the apostle Paul said, I want to share in the resurrection of Christ, but in order to share in his resurrection, I first have to share in his sufferings. There is a pathway that God has called us to in order to experience healing, in order to experience restoration, in order to experience freedom. And that pathway, friends, I'm telling you, it's it's, as hard as possible, that pathway is running toward the roar. If you don't, it's gonna booby trap you later. If you don't, it's gonna ambush you. And some of you, you have sat in your trauma, you've sat in your pain, you have sat in your anguish for years and years and years and years, stuffing it, suppressing it, escaping from it, trying to numb from it, and today's the day it stops. Today's the day you start running toward the roar. Today's the day you, you, you just let it out and bring it to the feet of Jesus. It says they wept until they had no more strength. They just emptied themselves. 
The only way God can fill you with what you need is when you empty yourself of what you don't need. Of the things that are preventing him from being able to get in and heal you. So he weeps. And then I'm going to invite the band to come up and help me uh, close this because the next thing he does is unbelievable. It says um, in chapter 6, I'm sorry, in, chapter, in uh, chapter 30, verse 6, it says, but, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He wept until he had no more strength. He was empty, but he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How many of you know that it's when we are at our weakest that God's strength is made perfect in us? But I need you to hear me say this. God fights our battles for us. But he's invited us to take part in them. You understand that? Like some of us, we're so busy, we're working as if it's all up to us. And we've left God out of the equation. And we're missing the X factor of the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing that he wants to bring in your life. And you're busy and you're strategizing and you're trying to do your thing and you're trying to, maybe you're trying to like, you're trying to live out someone else's story or whatever it is. You're just, you're working as if it's all up to you. And some of you, you're praying like crazy or you're waiting like crazy, but you're almost using prayer and waiting as an excuse not to step into the obedience that God has called you to. You hear me? God fights our battles, but he has invited us to participate. It's this dual equation where God takes his super and, 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 and invites us into participating in the natural. And when he takes his super and invites us in the natural, and we step into that with him, supernatural things can happen. And so David had to encourage himself. He had to strengthen himself in the Lord God, which means he had to, instead of focusing on the problem that was at hand, he had to begin focusing on the promises of God because he didn't feel it at first. He didn't feel this rush of God coming in him in the Holy Spirit, right? That's not what it says. It says he strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. In other words, he reminded himself, God, you are a promise maker and you are a promise keeper and you promise things to me. You promise that you will make the thief repay seven times what he has stolen. And so I'm gonna remind myself today of the promises of you. And then as I remind myself of your, of your promises, my problems will begin to diminish. Oh, they might not diminish in the natural, but they diminish in our perspective because we gain a perspective. We gain a heavenly kingdom perspective where we see above the storm, above the waves, and we look through the lens of God to be able to see our, our, our circumstances. We have to remind ourselves of the promises of God. And this is how he did it. This is crazy. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Are you ready for this? It says, David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me read this, I was like, all right, what's an ephod? Anybody know what an ephod is? Like, I thought it was like, I thought it was something from like Star Wars, you know? Like the lightsaber and the ephod. That's what I need, you know? Like, bring me my weapon. I'm going to go and I'm going to take, I'm going to take them back. This is going to be, we're about to get revenge. That's not, that's not what an ephod is. Yes, the priest, the ephod was the outer garment that the priest would wear when they would go into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice for the people. 
forgiveness of sins. It's the outer garment the priest would clothe themselves in for worship. There's two instances in scripture that we see David in. The ephod. The ephod, the ephod um, is worn by David in this instance and in another instance where he's king. And he's coming back into the city. He's just had this valiant conquest, this crusade where he's eliminated all of his enemies. They're coming in and they're celebrating in this parade. And maybe you remember the story. The women are like swooning out the window at him. And his wife actually gets really jealous of it and rebukes him. And he says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dance for my king, Jesus. I'm going to dance for the Lord. And I'll be even more undignified than this. But all he's wearing is a linen ephod. The linen ephod is also called the garment of praise. David says, bring me the garment of praise. So I'm going to weep. I'm going to lament. I'm going to acknowledge this pain. I'm going to bring it to the Lord. But then, in the midst of my pain, I'm going to put on praise. Come on, somebody. What do you do? When God puts on you more than what you can handle, will you put on something? Scripture tells us that we put on the armor of God. It tells us that we take off the old and we put on the new. And here David puts on the garment of praise. And he is reminding himself, no matter what happens, whether it's in my most tragic moment or whether it's in my most triumphant moment, I will always praise you God, because you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he puts on praise. You ever heard the phrase dress to impress? Dress to impress? I wonder if right here David is uh, is not dressing to impress anybody around him, but maybe he's dressing to impress something on his heart. That God is good and he is faithful no matter what happens in our lives. And he can be trusted. And he shows us that he is healer. He shows us that he is comforter. He shows us that he is provider. How do you know that God's a provider in your life? How do you know it? The only way you know it is you get in a situation where you need providing for, right? You need provision. How do you know he's a comforter? The only way you know is you're in a situation where nobody else can comfort you. Nothing else the world can offer can bring that, the ease of that pain. So why would God put more on us than what we could handle? To show us who he is. That in those deep, dark, desperate moments, he shows up for us. And he can be trusted. David says, I'm going to put on praise. I'm going to dress for the attitude I want, not the attitude I have. I'm going to walk in the glory of God. I'm going to walk in his promises. And I'm going to watch him come through. Then and only then did he ask, God, what do I do? See, you gotta, you gotta empty yourself of you, and then you gotta clothe yourself with the things of him before you can start asking God what to do. Because otherwise you will skew what you think you're supposed to do, right? You'll begin acting out of your own reactions instead of responding in the in the in, in the power of God. And so he says, God, what, what should I do? Verse 8 says, And David inquired the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Watch what God says. Pursue them. Pursue them. 
you will certainly overtake them and you will succeed in the rescue. God tells him this, and this is the message I have for you. He says, take him back. Go take him back. I don't know if you're like me, but I can tell you right now that I am sick and tired of watching the enemy neutralize shame, with guilt. I am sick and tired of it. And I've made it my life's mission. And our family has made it our life's crusade to tell people that God is inviting them to take back their story. That it's possible that through the power of Jesus, no matter what has come into your life, no matter what you have done, no matter what has taken place, you can live out a God-given story. You can give you can live out a God-given purpose. It's time to go take it back. It's time to go take it back. Let's take back your story. Let's take back your story. Can we pray together? I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to speak a couple promises over you as we pray every head bowed and every eye closed. See, what you have to understand is that David does. He goes and he raids and pillages and he takes back everything that was stolen from him and his men. And God fights those battles on our behalf as well. It actually says that they vanquished the entire enemy. Vanquished it. I'm so glad that God promises that he will vanquish the enemy. That one day there will be no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more shame, no more anguish. But maybe you're feeling that right now. And maybe on this side of things, what you need to do is you need to begin putting on the promises of God. Maybe you came in here today and you didn't feel like worshiping. You didn't feel like lifting your hands. You didn't feel like acknowledging God. You didn't feel like because you feel like he's abandoned you. You feel like he's left you. You're wondering where he is in all this. Can I tell you something? God will minister to your spirit in ways that no one else and nothing else can as you put on praise, as you begin to step in and walk in the promises of God. And so Jesus, I pray right now that as we respond to this, as we worship you, as we give you praise, would you meet us in that? Scripture tells us that praise can be our weapon, that you put the worshipers on the front lines of battle, that when we worship, there's something that happens. There's strongholds that can be broken. There are chains that can be dropped that things that have been plaguing us for years, that they can be eradicated, that at the sound of your voice, you have the power to diminish any ploy of the enemy that is coming against us right now. And so we trust in you. We praise you. We give you honor. We give you glory. We love you, Jesus. And I ask that you would give us the courage to step into that today. In your name we pray. Amen. Come on, can we stand together?